As a little kid, I used to dream of being on the Lewis and Clark expedition, which in 1804 and 1805 explored the newly purchased western regions of the United States, going up the Missouri River to the Pacific Ocean. I was also fascinated by the explorers who endeavored to be the first, like Amundsen, in the race to the North and South Poles in 1909 and 1911, Chuck Yeager breaking the speed of sound in 1947, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, of course first to stand on top of Mount Everest in 1953 and as a little kid absolutely indelibly imprinted into my mind at school watching Neil Armstrong take the first steps on the moon in 1969 followed by Buzz Aldrin. My guest today was one of those firsts one of the great explorers of our time. He reached the deepest point in the ocean known as Challenger Deep in 1960 U.S. Navy Navy Lieutenant Don Walsh and Swiss oceanographer and explorer Jacques Picard piloted the Bathyscaf Trieste 35,797 feet below the surface of the ocean when it became the first manned vessel to reach the bottom of the Mariana Trench, the deepest point in the Earth's seabed. Given the recent news of the Triton submersible disaster and the public's voracious appetite for news about not only what went wrong on the submersible disaster, but how a maverick explorer, if you will, like Stockton Rush, could get away with skirting so many rules, if you will, regulations, and still command a ticket price of $250,000 for the opportunity to become a mission specialist to take it to the bottom of the sea to visit the wreck of the Titanic. That the Titanic is still claiming victims 111 years after she first sank is actually a mind-boggling intermingling of time and space, a continuation of a completely avoidable disaster that has forever captivated the minds of millions of people, including filmmaker James Cameron, who not only created the blockbuster film Titanic, but himself has visited the wreck 37 times, many of them in a submersible that he designed. My conversation with the one and only Don Walsh from his home in Oregon, well, it was two years ago. And at the time, there is no conceivable way we could have predicted the disaster on the Titan submersible. And fittingly, ironically, it seems that our entire conversation is so pertinent to everything that took place on the submersible. A perfect conversation for the times we're living in now. In this day and age where all sorts of extreme tourism tickets are for sale, case in point, over 470 people paid sometimes over $100,000 for the chance to be guided up Mount Everest on fixed lines. And this year, 17 people died on the mountain. Extreme tourism is indeed a dangerous game. And what about the people who paid $55 million for the opportunity to go into space with SpaceX for $55 million? I think I'd probably rather wear a Bozo the Clown outfit. These are just the most hideous things I've ever seen. It's like, come on. All right, my opinion about what those spacesuits look like has no bearing on this conversation. Later in the video, I'm going to ask a question that I hope you'll stick around to answer, and it is pertaining to the Everest Mystery Channel and my conversation with Don Walsh. 
Don Walsh is my guest today. He is an explorer, an adventurer, a diver, an engineer, historian, journalist, researcher. You'd think that Don Walsh might have been happy with the accomplishments of 1960, going to the bottom of the ocean. But for him, that was just the beginning. In 1975, he retired from the Navy to become a professor of ocean engineering at the University of Southern California, where he founded the Institute of Marine and Coastal Studies. He left USC in 1984. He's authored over 200 ocean-related publications, spoken about his work in over 1,700 public programs. He's visited over 120 countries, has been on over 160 cruises where he has given lectures about his exploration and also his oceanographic knowledge of the polar regions and beyond. There is a mountain named for him in Antarctica where he has visited over 40 times. In 2001, he received the Explorers Club Medal and in 2010, he was awarded the National Geographic Society's highest award, the Hubbard Medal. Oh, and he has been to the site of the Titanic. Here is my conversation with the inspiring and ever-engaging Don Walsh from his home in southwestern Oregon. You know, only a few people get the distinction of being the first to, if you will, one of the poles, you know, whether it's Everest, North Pole, South Pole, the deepest, and you have that distinction. You know, what's it like to go down that deep when one small malfunction would be, you know, I, I can't even imagine the ending, how quick it would be. Well, before I start that, you remind me of something that one of the big takeouts for me and ever since I achieved some recognition with the uh, diving work 62 years ago was uh, the people I meet along the way. You, all of a sudden you have access to a lot of different people. Not that they're seeking you out, but to get co-mingled with them. You're at the same head table mm. uh, because you have a, a program and Walter Cronkite sitting mm. next to him at dinner. He's got something else he's supposed to be doing, but you, it, there's a certain normalized factor uh, of people who have attained something, so you don't have to uh, do the one-up stop. They know who you are. You know who they are. That's off the table. You're just visiting. And uh, I find it very – and it's not small talk, so I'm just really serious, like the future of exploration or stuff like that or whatever the mm. communal interest is. And sometimes it's totally unexpected, like when I, I was in St. Petersburg – uh, ending up having lunch with Gorbachev, which is six people. Um, you know, I got up that morning, Joan and I did, and we were invited to lunch by another couple on our ship. Uh, she was a former prime minister of Norway during the Cold War, and Gorbachev knew that she was coming to St. Petersburg, so he says, uh, come have lunch, we'll talk, and uh, you can bring another couple. Well, she didn't reveal that to us, and so we get to the restaurant at the Astoria Hotel, in St. Petersburg, which is the fanciest. It's a Zorost era hotel, uh -huh. but it's the best in St. Petersburg. And the table's set for six. And uh, Joan talks to me, who is this? I mean, who's coming? I said, I don't know. It's, you know uh, Dr. Brundtland uh, has invited, and her husband invited us. To, we know there's going to be somebody else, local. I don't know who. And so pretty soon, uh, four guys walk in the door. You know, we used to characterize them in the commercial diving world as having 
size 38 collar and a size two hat. And, uh, you know, they, and they're all got kind of their hands in the waistband and they park themselves at the four corners because this is the main dining room. Wow. I thought, oh, shit, you know, <laughs> how far is it to get under the table if the bullets start flying? And then in comes uh, uh, Gorbachev with his translator, Pavel. And, uh, you know, I said, uh, Don Walsh. my name is Don Walsh. That was the last thing I said for two hours, which as you've already gathered, um, economy of speech is not in my uh, particular backpack. And, uh, you know, and Joan looked just surprised. And, uh, you know, he shook her hand, but she didn't say anything. We all sat down. And for two hours, he delivered a soliloquy to his old Cold War buddy, uh, Dr. Brundtland, Norway. What could I have done better? <clears throat> what will they put on my tombstone? How can you turn off 70 years of Stalinism by mm. just the one president of the Soviet Union? And uh, it was you know, pages of history. Mm. And it was wonderful. So after the lunch, Joan and I go back out on the street. Thought we'd have a little walk around downtown. And she turns to me, she says, you sure know how to take a girl on a lunch date. <laughs> so... <laughs> I know I digress, but that's an example of you never know where you're going to have lunch, and it's all because I wouldn't have been on that ship, expedition mm-hmm. ship, if I hadn't been there as a lecturer. But I wasn't lecturing to that particular cruise. Dr. Brundtland had relieved me. She was talking about the Cold War and the Baltic, <clears throat> so we just had to show up for meals. Kind of new, new to encourage tourism in Russia. Mm-hmm. This all comes one thing, kind of knocks on to another. It's amazing. I don't ask for any of it. It just happens. Truly, the most lasting and meaningful aspect of it all are the human relationships that are built along the way. That Without it, I, I might as well just stay right here in my house. I, I, The people, the cultures, and the individual relationships that are formed when you go through a hardship, I can imagine what it must have been was Jacques Picard after, you know, I mean, that you are, that's the essence of exploration for me, is that people who you become friends with. Well, and uh, of course, to the three Picard siblings, I'm Uncle Don. Um, but the thing I, I guess I wanted to mention, I, I didn't bring it up to make it clear, is that after I did the deepest dive, I was 28 years old, I realized I'm in the same position that the guy that made the touchdown that won the big game in university and college. Mm. And you sort of die after that. Mm. The rest of your life didn't count. And I really didn't want to be in that situation. So mm. I, you know, when I'm down the polar regions, I never talk about diving stuff. It's not related. It's not relevant. You, you, your relevance is to where the ship is, what you're going to see and what we're doing. And uh, you know, a, I'm an oceanographer. Uh, so my PhD is in oceanography, so I can talk in oceanography without talking about Trieste. And so I, in those venues, I never talked about Trieste. But mm-hmm. when I'm doing underwater stuff, those venues, I never talk about the polar regions. But I have these sort of two parallel life streams. But when you were down, going down into that, it 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 might as well have been going to the moon. And and and. I can't imagine that you didn't, before you actually submerged, knowing you were going there, that, like, this could be it. Like, 
and you're and and I and I know you had talked about this. This could be the end. I mean, we could we could not. It's a chance we don't make it. But you had two brains, two smart, young, highly functioning people in there, which I believe you said one time that was probably the best working you know, kind of machine we could put in the Trieste, right, to ensure that things come off smoothly. But um, were you aware of that? Or did you just, as, as a Navy man, as were, did you just click into performance mode and put all worry or fears aside? Well, uh, one way is, you know, when you're training to do something or getting ready to do something, we have what you call a skill luck ratio. And you always want to keep skill well beyond 50%. But there's always going to be a need for that luck, too, in there. Yeah. And so uh, we, uh, we practiced a long time. You know, first of all, I came to the Trieste as a qualified submarine officer. That means I earned my dolphins, same as wings and the aviators have. Mm-hmm. And so I've been in submarines for a couple of years at that point. They're pretty complicated things. Mm. I mean, all the systems in a submerging ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, not simple, even though the ones we were driving around in had been actually built during World War II, upgraded since then. But basically, basic systems, the engines, the electricity, the compressed air, all of that uh, were uh, uh, legacy uh, mm-hmm. systems. So uh, I came into something that sort of had two moving parts, uh, a bathyscaphe, because it's just an underwater balloon, you know, one part of the balloon, and it's oh. filled with lighter than water substance huh. petroleum and got hanging beneath that balloon is a cabin for the people that's it uh huh. and, and i'm not simplifying it was different but not complex so we had to learn the differences so i spent a lot of time climbing all over in my boiler suit inside the tank and uh around all the fittings and systems and so on and it wasn't that complicated then mm. we took when we took it out to the island of guam to uh, stage for the deepest dive, we went out about six months before the dive itself, and we did successively deeper test dives, starting mm-hmm. the harbor at Guam, a couple hundred feet, and we just moved offshore. Each dive was a little deeper, and we would, uh, you know, give it the smoke test: what's working, what's not working, what we like, what features we'd like to add, and just the general feel, the noises, normal noises. Uh, the background, if you will, of the thing. And so we did, I don't know, 14 test dives. And in fact, I think a week before our deepest dive, we dove to 24,000 feet uh, and all systems were going well. So we decided we were ready for the deepest dive. So we were pretty much experienced in operating the thing and what the good noises were and, uh, and things that we hadn't heard before, then we could give them our full attention. We were like test pilots. You know, the, 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 the Trieste was purchased by the U.S. Navy's Office of Re- uh, Naval Research. It was purchased to be a platform for oceanographers, for scientists. Mm. And, uh, but what the Navy wanted us to do first was to test it out as thoroughly, thoroughly as we could before it was handed over to the scientists. Because the scientists don't like adventure. He <laughs> wants a place he can go. It's a safe, known platform, proven out, and yeah. just focus on his research. And so the whole thematic of our dive program in Guam was to emphasize routine. But, we, but th- excuse me, we've got to test it out first before we hand it over to you. 
and it's just like a new airplane. Even even a, a 737 comes out of the Boeing factory, it gets a pretty rigorous flight test program. It mm-hmm. doesn't roll out of the factory in Everett, Washington, and go straight over to SeaTac and load passengers for Atlanta. Yeah, it gets tested for a, a period of time, maybe ten or twelve days, with very elaborate system checks. Even though it's the thirteen thousandth seven thirty-seven ever built, they treat it like it's the first time. Those are your test pilots. Yeah, and that's an analog to what Doc and I were doing. We were not scientists. Yeah, people say, "Well, he didn't do any research." No, he didn't. We were just trying to make sure the damn thing is reliable, safe, and useful. Mm. And uh, we were two engineers. That was our job. Not to set a record. In fact, I was, I was specifically ordered by the chief of naval operations, who's the number one admiral in the Navy, a guy named Arlie Burke in those days, who was highly revered in the Navy, personally, because I was in his office. He said, Walsh, there'll be no publicity. I said, yes, sir. He said, if, uh, if you're successful, there'll be publicity. If you're not successful, we're not going to say anything. And that's that. Wow. So people say, well, Navy went out to set a record. No, we didn't. That's incident to our primary mission. It wasn't my job to set a record. My job was to, uh, in jocks, uh, to prove out the system before we handed it over to the, uh, the uh, scientists. But, uh, yeah, we, I kept it low key. And the other thing was, if you look at any of the contemporary photography of that time, and myself and Larry Shoemaker, Lieutenant Shoemaker was my assistant, uh, we're always in uniform, not parade uniform, working Navy uniform, a cap, uh, you know, khaki shirt and trousers, dolphins, and rank insignia. We didn't need that. We've been much more comfortable in shorts and a t-shirt because, you know, you know, in Guam, you're always getting wet. If you fall off the top of the bath scaff into the harbor, you know, it's 89 degrees. So you just climb back out and go back to work. Uh, it was, you know, it's, there were more comfortable ways, ways for us, but the idea was to provide comfort for them. Yeah. Whenever time they look, these guys in red uniform. I mandated that. I told Larry, "We got to do this." Because every time a camera's pointed at us, you got to see two U.S. Navy officers, uh, and because it, it, it is an all Navy program, mm-hmm. we we designed the program. We paid for it. We owned the bathyscaphe. We modified it hugely before we could use it for mm. the, uh, the uh, Guam guys. So it's all a bit of strategy and tactics there, but we uh, had, uh, were permitted not to say anything. We're not permitted to say anything. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know how you put it, National Geographic got wind of it, and Life Magazine got wind of it, mm. and the London Daily Mail. So, uh, yeah, it. Uh, when people say you're scared or afraid, no, not really. We, yeah. we tested it so much. We knew you're in your game, but you know, being afraid just saps your, you know, your mental acuity. That's mm-hmm. not good. Then you're unsafe. We we're really paying attention to tr- through training and repetition. We knew what to do. We knew what normal was and abnormal. Then if it came, we know how to take care of it mm. or try to. So Don, the, the future of, of ocean exploration or the present actually i should say is that the the need it appears that the need for a human being to actually be in one of these uh vehicles for lack lack of a better word is probably not 
really, they, I don't even think they do that anymore, do they? Or is it, don't they send remote vehicles down now to do research or? Uh, you know, this, what you're saying is, is uh, quite correct, but incomplete. Um, I do believe that unmanned systems uh, can be far superior to manned systems where you're doing dumb science. I don't mean dumb as in stupid, but mm -hmm. dumb where it doesn't require the presence of a human. For example, uh, mapping large tracts of the sea floor uh, in high precision. You have to have a vehicle down there. You can't do it from a surface ship very well. But I think there's always going to be a, a, some room for manned submersibles. Um, I, uh, Roger Revelle, who was one of the great uh, oceanographers of the 20th century, um, uh, who was married to Alan Scripps of Scripps Institution, got to his, he was one of the first PhDs out of Scripps in the late 30s. And uh, I asked him the question, I said, Roger, why, why man? So, you know, space programs diddling with this perpetually. Why not send a monkey up or, or send up a, you know, a, a drone type thing automated? And he looked at me, he said, he didn't pause. He says, because you can't surprise an instrument. And I thought, oh, that's a lot of wisdom there. A human brain has capability of adjusting whatever you're doing at the moment. You're capable of surprise and figuring out what to do next. Uh, and I guess Jim Cameron was even more succinct. Jim and I were at some kind of event. Where we were jointly talking about our experiences. And uh, some, in the question period, somebody asked him, uh, why man? And he said, well, what kid wants to grow up to be a robot? <laughs> and there's a lot of wisdom in that. Because look at People Magazine. What, half century now? We buy yeah. the goddamn thing because we want to see what other people are doing. You're listening to my conversation with legendary explorer and oceanographer Don Walsh, who in 1960, along with Swiss oceanographer and explorer Jacques Picard, piloted the Bathyscaphe Trieste 35,797 feet below the surface of the sea when it became the first crewed vessel to reach the bottom of the Mariana Trench, the deepest point in the Earth's seabed. After 62 years, you can't imagine how many times I've been asked, were you ever scared? How deep did you get? What did you see? What was it like? Tell me about the Trieste. Why don't you begin with your shoe size when you were growing up? A lot of writers, you know, they want me to write the goddamn, dictate the story for them and put their byline on it. Well, as a writer who earns money doing this, I don't like to write other people's stories. As a writer, you can understand that. And, and, and so few of them have taken the time to do their background. I mean, the real pros come prepared. You can tell when you're talking to them. And, and the real rookies who apparently never got their degree from journalism school uh, just want to have a con an audience and, uh, and want me to dictate the story to them so they can turn around, put their name on it. Well, I detect that and very resistant because I wrote that narrative for that very reason. Those are all the questions I've been asked over six decades Amazing. and keep repeating and repeating, you know, yeah. rewind the tape and hit the go button. So uh, that's yeah. why I wrote that self-defense. To me, that's the golden quote. It, 
there's there's no way to put it into words. Oh, no, I asked Ed Hillary once, uh, and probably in the same genre, and he probably rolled his eyes, all I didn't detect it. What did you think when you got to the top? And he said, well, that polishes the bugger off. Now, how do I get down? Yeah, Neil yeah. Armstrong moment. Yeah, and and well, that, that might explain a little bit why Neil Armstrong was not um, one known to attend many events where people might mob him for to so they could touch the man who first stepped foot on the moon in, in you know you can only do a first once in the world and you know the the top of everest and the north pole the south pole break the speed of sound the bottom of the ocean and and so young explorers looking for a way to to spend whatever might be a future expedition in a meaningful way, given especially the state of the planet and the, and the depletion of the oceans, what's left? What, what's left for the future? Well, that's a, that's a robust theme uh, in the Explorers Club and among explorers. That is, has it all been found? And of course it hasn't. Uh, we, you can, it's a rhetorical question. Even the big ticket items, uh, if you will, first or this or that, you have to be careful. You, you, first of all, you have to set down um, you know, guidelines of what, what you consider things to be first up or apt. For example, uh, the people studying the um, microbial life of the Hadal Trenches now, excellent scientist in England, Alan Jameson, who is Mr. Adel Trench, you know, because you know, that's 2% of the ocean floor of the trenches, total area. And, uh, and that's the reason we've not explored these deep trenches adequately before, because 98% of the seafloor can be seen if you have the capability to work at 20,000 feet or 6,000 mm -hmm. meters. What a deal for a bean yeah. counter or, or, you know, people paying to uh, do exploration and, and the equipment and so on, you can design for just a little over half the maximum depth of the ocean and have access to 98% of the seafloor. But the Hadal zone, uh, you know, these trenches, most of them are 30,000, let's say it's 25, 27,000 to the maximum 36,000 feet. And so is it worth spending a whole lot of money for only 2%? Well, yes, uh, but we're just getting on to that now. So Alan Jameson has uh, really pioneered, he's a, he's a Hadal biologist, and he's just discovering stuff left and right. He's written two books on it. And, and so a lot of firsts there. So uh, you have to be careful. You have to set parameters. Uh, it's, you know, when we were teenagers, we used to have the stoplight Grand Prix. You know, you'd be lined up to cars and get across faster than the guy next to him. Only yeah. thing is he didn't know he was in a race. So he just put, you know, drove off normally and you went, wow. And you, yeah, I'm first off. And you said, you know, you get a Hispanic speaking um, Vietnam veteran female with uh, only one leg climbing Mount Everest. Okay, that's a journey of internal uh, exploration, self. Yeah. But the rest of the world, who gives a shit? I mean, 
the, the, what's the purpose to it in terms of adding to the commonwealth of knowledge of humankind? Zip zero. That's one of the big problems we have in the Explorers Club. When I was on the Flag and Honors Committee for 14 years, we, you know, we, we uh, award flags to certain expeditions. You got a rather, rather elaborate uh, application to basically what it all says is, what are you going to contribute to science by field work? If you strip out all the crap, crap, yeah. crap on, in the application. But you get adventurers and get explorers, and there's a definite difference there. Mm. A guy that's doing a paddleboard from the Farallon Islands to Tokyo Bay, uh, that's an adventurer. He's not adding to mankind's knowledge. It's sure, mental toughness, physical uh, you know, well-being and all of that, and, and it's, a, it's a journey of self, internal exploration. Are you really this tough? Do you have the mental ability? But it's not exploration. And it's often hard. People come in and say, I got this great idea. And uh, okay, but it doesn't contribute to science. And the whole idea is contribution of the knowledge of humankind through field exploration. Of course, the outside world, and I, you know, don't blame them, always think all such things are exploring. And they're not. And you don't want to demean the people who do these. I couldn't do them. I can't climb I have a hard time climbing over a parking lot, bump, you know, speed bumps. So don't tell me about climbing. My low gear has been shot since I was born. I can't climb. So, I, you know, th I, these are things I can't do. But that doesn't mean I can tell the difference between exploration, discovery. You know, I define exploration and, uh, and uh, as uh, curiosity acted upon. And uh, I told John Glenn that once, and he used it. And, and Jim Cameron uses it also as a definition of exploration. I, I, you know, I'm not copyrighted. I'm just saying that it had <laughs> right. legs. Right. And, uh, you know, everybody's curious. I'll be publishing the balance of my interview with Don Walsh on my podcast called The Happiness Quotient. Check in the description for the link to that. Okay, now the question for the viewers. A good friend of mine, Mark Sinnott, he's a New York Times bestselling author, big wall climber and explorer. We were on Everest together in 2019. He has said that an adventure is when you don't know the outcome of your journey. So. The question to you is, if there is a snafu or something goes wrong on an extreme expedition operated by a company that hasn't gone through extensive testing and certifications, should there be any type of rescue mounted to try and save the occupants, whether that be on land, sea, or in space? Let me know in the comments below, yes or no. I wanna hear your thoughts. And while you're taking the time to do that, let me know where you're coming from today. If you like what you've seen and heard today, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to this channel and also think about becoming a member on this page or my Patreon page to support the work that I do here where you'll get exclusive content. You can find my Patreon link in the notes. And here on this page, click the join button and you can check out the different levels of membership. In the meantime, do a kind deed, celebrate the successes of others, endeavor to make the world a better place by doing a kind deed for somebody you don't know without looking for anything in return. Be well, take care of yourselves. Thank you for being here. Have a beautiful day.